0: Uh, we are in the book of Daniel. Uh, we've been there for a little while. And if you're new or you're just coming in, Daniel is a book in the Old Testament. Um, it's one of the major prophets, they're called. So it's kind of about this guy uh, who's living in the ancient city of Babylon. And he's not living there on his own accord, <laughs> he's been taken there. So he's an exile. Um, in a culture that's totally different from what he's used to, uh, that does not worship the same God that he worships, um, that has completely different customs, all of that kind of stuff. And last week, the passage we talked about was how the king of Babylon at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar, which, by the way, I'm never going to learn how to spell that. You th- would think that by typing it as many times as I did this week, I would figure it out. But autocorrect is um, too helpful. I've forgotten how to spell so last week, King Nebuchadnezzar, he had this vision of a huge tree, right? Joel kind of talked through this vision. Um, the, the tree is kind of supposed to represent King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon itself and the greatness that it has achieved. And there's all these different animals and thing, there's fruit produced by the tree. There's animals hanging out in it, living in, its, uh, in the shade or kind of within the tree. Um, And then in the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had, he hears a voice from heaven calling to cut the tree down. The voice says, this is from verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, which we went through last week. It says, let him, King Nebuchadnezzar, be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passes by for him. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is obviously troubled by this dream, and he calls on Daniel, our main character from the book, and asks him to help him interpret it. What does it mean? And unfortunately, Daniel has to tell him that this is a warning from God for King Nebuchadnezzar, that all these things will happen to him if he does not repent and worship God. So that's kind of where we left it at the end of last week, a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, And uh, at the end of it, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And our passage today picks up after that, but it actually picks up a whole year later. So we're gonna start in Daniel 4, uh, 28 through 37. So it says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Spoiler alert, everything's gonna happen that we just read. Uh, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory and majesty? So he's uh, clearly here, thinks a little bit highly of himself. And I don't know why this, uh, I had this idea in my head, but I've always kind of thought of King Nebuchadnezzar as this like bumbling, like kind of idiotic guy, right? Like he like reacts really strongly to things and is like, throw them in the fire if they aren't gonna do this and cut everybody to pieces. And I don't know, I I don't know if it's because like that's the only veggie tales I ever saw growing up as a kid was the one that had to do with King Nebuchadnezzar, but I've just always thought of him as a little ridiculous, like kind of a caricature of a real king. But the truth is in history that this guy actually had a lot of reasons to brag. He is one of probably like the best rulers in history. We know that he was an incredibly effective and successful king. He was the longest reigning and most powerful monarch of the Neo Babylonian Empire. He conquered a lot of territory, and it was probably like he was in the battle with people. It's not like he was hanging out back there giving orders and telling people to, you know, hey, go go attack that kingdom and then go to do this. Like, he was in it. He he knew how to be like a military general type of guy. And not only that, but he also helped a lot of art flourish in that time period. So if you're familiar with the the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon is actually one of those, and he was in charge when that was built, and he was kind of the the idea behind it. So I've got a picture. it's a little bit hard to see, and I also have no idea how accurate this actually is because it no longer exists. But it was this like beautiful garden, and they were kind of cascading down off of buildings and just like just this beautiful lush thing that uh, was really beautiful. So, When he's saying, look at all these mighty things I've done, look at my amazing kingdom, he's not wrong. (laughs) He was a really great guy uh, for a king, as a king, maybe not so much as a guy. Uh, But even though he wasn't wrong, it doesn't necessarily make him right. So as we go on through the passage, we see uh, that, as it said, all these things come true. So it says, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. So everything that Daniel interpreted from the vision, Daniel wasn't messing around. It comes true. Uh, and as, as you read this, it's like, okay, this is a little bit weird. Did he actually turn into an animal, or is he just, like, think he is one? And it talks about these seven times. What is that? How long is that? What's happening here? Um, and so if you look back to the dream itself, uh, that... Nebuchadnezzar had that kind of predicted all of this. It says in verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. So I think it is more to do with like a uh, in his head. It's almost like he had a mental break. Uh, He believed he was an animal, even though he was still human. In his mind, he believed he was an animal. And there's actually accounts from history around the same time period That speak to this this idea that he kind of had a mental illness or kind of had something go wrong. There's several historical sources that are not related to the Bible that talk about. There's this time period in Nebuchadnezzar's rule where he goes a little bit crazy. Some people thought it was a you know our equivalent of what a mental illness would be. Um, But they talk about how he thought he was an animal, and they even some of the accounts actually talk about like claws and feathers and different things. and then he neglected his kingdom. That was the big point in the history accounts, right? Is that he kind of just was like, okay, hey, see you later. Good luck, you know, figuring out how to rule the kingdom because he, w- he believed he was an animal. So there's actually a lot of historical evidence that this probably did happen to some extent. And then the question of how long is seven times? We're going to talk more in the book of Daniel about numbers later because that's going to become more and more important um, in these visions that happen. So we'll see that the specific numbers themselves are maybe not so much the point that the author is trying to make, uh, but that there's a certain amount of time that happens. And a lot of these numbers had symbolic um, meanings attached to them. And the number seven is often thought to be like completeness. And so it's possible that it just meant until the time that was complete that Nebuchadnezzar needed to like get the message, right? Until he uh, was ready to, you know, renounce his ways and acknowledge God as the most high. So that's kind of where, there's a little bit more to our passage, but I'm going to get to that at the end. Uh, But the big thing I want to address today and kind of look at is the idea of pride, right? We see a lot of pride in Nebuchadnezzar right away in the beginning, and clearly God has something to say about that. So we're going to talk about pride, how do we deal with it, how did Nebuchadnezzar get into this place in the first place, Um, yeah, what does it look like for us to deal with it? And we'll really see, you know, we titled this sermon series, Daniel, Competing Kingdoms, because, like I said in the beginning, the book of Daniel, you really see that there's a kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of what it looks like to live uh, as you're following out worship of God, and then there's this kingdom of Babylon, and there's a whole other set of ways of doing things, the culture is different, the expectations are different, And I think that we still have that today, right? So we still live in a competing kingdom because we are Christ followers and we live in that world. And yet the world around us does not follow the same expectations, does not have the same culture that we do. And so we're going to see as we kind of walk through this idea of pride that there's two competing kingdoms. There's one that says, it's all about you, right? Last week, Joel talked about the little Caesars, kind of that we all think that we're our own kings and we get to do whatever we want to do. We can live life how we want to live life. Uh, And so therefore, if that's the case, why not boast, right? If it's all about me, then it's okay to be prideful. It's okay for me to be boasting about my accomplishments or what I'm doing. So that's one kingdom. And then on the other hand, we're going to see that God has issue with this, right? The vision says, cut the tree down. So there's something going on that is uh, not in line with what it would look like to live in God's kingdom. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it looks like to deal with pride, Uh, in our own lives with Nebuchadnezzar as our example. So the first thing I want to talk about is just redefining success. So most of the time when we're prideful, it's because we feel like we have some kind of success in our life, right? Something that we are excited about or that we feel good about, that we want everybody else to know that, that we are good at this thing. And success by definition, according to Google's dictionary, just says the accomplishment of an aim or purpose. So we have to ask, What's our purpose? What goal are we aiming at? In King Nebuchadnezzar's, it's pretty clear, right? It's pretty clear that it's all about him. It's about his achievements, his abilities, and acknowledgement for those things. So we see, right, he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built uh, by my mighty power? So clearly he sees it as an achievement for himself. He also sees something about his ability, right? His mighty power is what got him there because he was a good warrior and he knew how to build a kingdom. So he thinks it's all about him. And then lastly, he says, "For the glory of my majesty," right? He wants that acknowledgment. He doesn't just want to do the work and show that he's great. He wants people to celebrate him, right? And we saw this in previous chapters where he wants people to worship um, statues that were likely meant to represent him in Babylon. Uh, And so we see that he really believes that he's incredible and he wants people to acknowledge him in that. And it might sound a little overblown to try and apply that to us, right? We're not building statues, hopefully, uh, and asking people to worship them for us. But I do think that there are certain things in that that we uh, have in our own hearts that we fight against as well. Even if we're maybe not walking around saying it to other people, it's probably still uh, inside of us. And I think a big part of that is how we measure success, what things we're giving weight to to say, these are things that we as a culture should be proud of or that I should be proud of. And so I think we kind of all carry around these like little scorecards in the back of our mind that tells us how well we're doing, how well we're measuring up to everybody else. And these scorecards mostly come from culture, right? Or from what other people think, uh, what generally speaking the culture says, this is what is what it means to have success. And really, whether we think highly of ourselves when we meet them, thats we feel pride in that, or if we feel really lowly about ourselves when we don't meet them, there's still a sense of pride in that as well, which we'll talk about more moving forward. But I want us to really think about what scorecards are we measuring ourselves to, whether that's in your profession or in your personal life. Um, I'll give you an example as we think about it to kind of help you start thinking, what might be some of the things that you measure yourself by? So in the church world, the scorecard that people like to talk about, uh, it's kind of a joke, but I think people kind of, some people kind of take it seriously. Uh, they say butts, budgets, and buildings. So butts is uh, how many butts are in the seats, right? <laughs> how many people are coming to your church or what are you running? Some people, some people have heard say. And then the, the budgets obviously is money. People value that and see that as success. And then building. Right? We do not have a building. Thank you so much, Setup Team, for helping us get everything ready today and every week. You are amazing. We could not do this without you. Uh, but that's the scorecard that a lot of people measure church health by. But when you think about it, it's a really terrible scorecard. You could have all of those things, but you could not have any uh, aspect of the gospel or God in your services. People might not be growing. There might not be the Holy Spirit working. You have no idea based on those three things whether or not God is truly moving in the life of your church uh, and whether it's really successful by that standard. So it's an unhelpful scorecard. It's a scorecard that doesn't actually get to what the root of success would be in God's kingdom. So I want you to think about what are those scorecards in your life, right? If you're a parent Maybe these milestones, right? Your kid needs to be doing this by this age, and well, so-and-so's kid's already walking, and they're only this age, but your kid still, you know, hasn't gotten uh, on their feet yet, or whatever it is. There's all these expectations for parents these days about what it looks like to be a successful parent in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the uh, competing culture. But again, none of those things actually directly tell you whether or not you're a loving parent, whether you're patient, whether you're uh, you know, practicing the gospel and that you're realizing that you can be a failure sometimes and you're teaching your kids how to forgive and how to go to God in those moments. Or whatever it is that you're doing at work, right? I know that some, I remember some people, um, I remember Angela telling me this from when she worked at Target, that they would literally get a scorecard every week that basically said, red, yellow, or green, how good are you doing at your job this week? Um, Or how good are you doing at predicting sales and different things like that? That's not necessarily, it's a great indicator maybe for how much money you're making the company, but it's not a great indicator of whether or not you're being a faithful worker in God's kingdom, whether you have ethics in your work, whether you're caring for your coworkers and being kind to them. There's all these different markers of success that we might mark differently than the world does. School, right? If you're in school right now, grades, GPA, all that kind of stuff can feel like so much pressure, and that if you're not doing those things, then you're not succeeding. You're not meeting the expectations of other people. But again, that doesn't show you, are you following God in your studies? Are you investing in the people in your life. There's all these other markers that you could look at. And I want another story from scripture that I think illustrates this really well comes from the story of Isaiah. So he's another prophet in the Old Testament, and he also has a vision from God. And he's given this calling. God says, go and tell these people about me. Tell them to turn and repent and turn to God. But before he even finishes the calling, he says, here's the deal very few of them will actually hear you, much less listen to you. He gives him a calling to go and do this thing, but he tells him right away, this is not going to be a success in the eyes of what you might think it should be, right? He calls him to go and evangelize, basically, but he's not going to have him be a super successful evangelist, right? He's not going to become the next Billy Graham who's having tons of people convert in the way that we might think that's what it looks like to be successful in going and telling people about God. Isaiah doesn't become a celebrity pastor with a huge following on social media. Uh, He doesn't have a huge following that follows him around even in life. In fact, he's very unwelcomed, if you can imagine. People are not a huge fan of him. And here's the thing. God calls him to this knowing that that's going to be the case. He calls him to this, and Isaiah knows that this is the calling, right? He knows, I'm going to go out and do this thing, and it's not going to be a success by the world's standards. And yet he still does it. And truly the measure of success there is that he's faithful. He's willing to follow God, to do what God has asked of him, even if it means he's not going to be well-liked. He's not going to have immediate success. It's not going to be easy. He knows it's going to be difficult from the very beginning, and yet he still says, here I am, God, send me. So I want us to think about, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to say, okay, God, no matter what, I'm willing to be faithful to you, even if it doesn't mean success in the worldly standard, in the competing kingdom standards. I think we need to change our definition of success. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't work hard at your job. You should. We've already talked about this, right? In previous sermons in Daniel, we've talked about how important it is uh, for you to work hard in your job and why your work matters to God, why it can bring glory to him. So it's not that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't try or you should just kind of give up on like, I'm not going to... I'm not gonna even try to do well according to the company's standards, right? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, ask yourself why you do it. Are you doing it because you need that uh, praise for your abilities and your achievements and you need that acknowledgement in the way that King Nebuchadnezzar did? Or are you working hard because God's called you to be faithful wherever he's put you? Are you working because God has called you to be faithful regardless of the outcome, no matter what happens, even if it's a failure by the world's standards? Are you still being willing to, to be faithful? There's a verse, it's Micah 6, 8 that says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. God does not call us to success by the world's standards, although he might still give it to you sometimes, right? I'm not saying that you're doomed to a life where you're never gonna be successful in what you're doing, but instead he calls us to walk humbly with him. So that's our first idea is that we need to redefine what success means. All right. Secondly, we need to give credit where credit is due. So where our passage picked up today, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar is taking complete credit for all of the good things that have happened, right? Everything is, I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. It's all about his achievements and his abilities. But the truth is that all of our gifts and all of our abilities are actually from God, They're not from us, right? We didn't have control over the time and the place that we were born in. We didn't have control over what resources our family had. God is the one who's in control. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And as we studied earlier this year in Ephesians, it talks about how every grace and gift has been given as Christ has apportioned it. And if you're like, okay, yeah, Julie, but you don't know how hard I work. I'm actually really good at my job. Uh, And so some of these things that I've been doing, or I'm really good at, you know, fixing my house, or whatever it is that you feel pride about, you're like, no, that was me. You don't know the time and the effort and the energy that I put into that. And I'm not discrediting that effort. But I do think that a lot of our uh, things that we think are all about us are actually still gifts from God. And if you want a different example that's not from scripture, uh, there's a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Has anybody read that or heard of it? Yep. It's been pretty popular. So Malcolm Gladwell is a writer. He deals a lot with sociology and psychology. And in his book Outliers, he really goes after the the myth of the self-made man. That's what he calls it. So he debunks what he calls a peculiar okay, I can't say it, I'll say particularly because I can say that word, American belief that character intelligence and hard work determine success. He says, it's the age-old myth of the self-made man, the idea that we are not wholly but largely responsible for our own success. Uh, But then he goes on to say, when you look at the lives of the highly successful, the idea that they're self-made crumbles. So he uses different examples throughout the book, one of them being Bill Gates, uh, and he uses him as an example of someone who benefited from extremely fortunate circumstances. So in 1969, Gates High School had a computer terminal. What do you call it a computer terminal? Is that a thing in computer world? Um but at a time when most colleges didn't even have them, right? So he had access to computers way before some of his, like, would-be competitors, right? So he had all this extra time to work with computers, get good at it, uh, and had a chance to really succeed in what he was doing. Another example he gives, he talks about uh, NHL hockey players. So he talks about how when they're, broken up, when they're younger, when kids are playing hockey, and they're broken up into, like, you're going to be on this team, and you're going to be on this team, uh, by different age brackets, for sake of simplicity, we'll just say, you know, like, all kids born in 2004 are on this team, and all kids born in 2005 are on this team. But then when you think about it, a kid born in January of a, of a year, and a kid born in December of a year, are almost a year apart, And so then when you're playing a sport that's really competitive and has a lot to do with, like, your physicality, right? Like, how big you are, how much you can move around on the ice and kind of take down other players. I clearly don't watch a lot of hockey. Uh, But, (laughs) right, there's a big difference between a kid that's born in the beginning of the year and who's born at the end of the year. And so what his research found is that a lot of these kids who had the, like, advantage of they were older than the rest of their kids, the other kids on their team, they got more coaching, they got more playing time because they were naturally better just because of their age and their size. Nothing that they did on their own, right? They didn't choose to be born at a certain time in the year, but because of that, they had a competitive advantage. So he basically just goes through and says, look, all these things that we like to say, that person is so great because they worked so hard or because they have this like natural gifting, usually there's other factors that they didn't have the ability to control. So I think we can all look at different things in life and see that. Uh, But the book of Daniel is like a great test case for seeing that even the people who are doing really well and who, you know, have a whole kingdom to themselves, they're not in control, right? Everything in the book of Daniel up until this point has basically showed us that although it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is in control, he's the one bringing people into exile, he's the one setting up all these systems and statues and different things. He's not in control, right? Look back. In the very beginning of Daniel, like the first few verses, Joel talked about this a while back, that it says God is the one who gives, uh, gave Babylon over to him. So God's the one who gave him the victory, not even King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it says that, then we move on and we talk about how, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had all these dreams and visions. He couldn't figure out what to do with them. He couldn't un- understand them or interpret them. But God gave Daniel the ability to do that. And then even when King Nebuchadnezzar tried to show his greatest show of force by throwing a bunch of people into a furnace, it didn't work, right? God is still in control. He is the one who has the ability to save people um, and to also humble them, as we, as we see in this passage, right? Even the mightiest ruler of Babylon can be humbled by God. And this is true in our own lives, too, right? We need to, so we need to give credit where credit is due. Instead of trying to take the glory and the praise for our gifts or our successes in our lives, we need to praise and acknowledge God. And you know that person in the meeting or at work or wherever who like takes credit for ideas that aren't theirs. They're just the worst, right? Like That's just the worst feeling when you have an idea and someone else says it like louder or however however they get heard more, and then they get the credit for it. Nobody likes that, right? So don't be that person. <laughs> give God the credit. Give him the credit where it's due. Acknowledge him and praise him for the work that he's done in your life. All right. And then lastly, we're going to talk about what it looks like to repent and look up. So we're going to continue through that passage and read to the end. This is verse four, chapter four, verse 34. At the end of that time, so now we've switched into like first person for Nebuchadnezzar. I don't, the writing is a little strange, but So this is a huge shift, right? Uh, Before this, that prayer that he says would have probably all been about him, right? Insert anywhere it says that God is awesome or that God does these things. And his before probably would have been, I'm awesome. I am ruler of all things. But this experience has humbled him and has made him see uh, that God is truly the one who uh, is in charge and whose kingdom reigns forever. And now we see that he recognized that his success is not the success that matters, and that none of the successes he had came from him in the first place. And just like Daniel had predicted, it results in his kingdom being restored to him. So wrapping it up, he says, at the the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So we see that King Nebuchadnezzar repents. And that word repent, it actually just means to turn from, right? To leave something behind and move towards something else. And so he turns from his old ways of constantly looking down at himself, And always thinking about his kingdom and how great he is. And he turns and looks up. He looks up to God. Now, how sincere is Nebuchadnezzar? We don't totally know. Uh, Up until this point, it kind of seems like there are times when he really gets that God is king. And then there are other times where it seems like he's like, yeah, God just kind of fits into my other pantheon of gods that I have. He's just one of the many. So, do we know what it looks like for him if he's changed? We don't know entirely. Uh, But we do know that he acknowledges God's supremacy, and he glorifies and praises him instead of himself. And he acknowledges that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. So in that way, he gives us an example of how we can repent from pride. We turn our gaze from ourselves, from constantly looking down and looking inward, and looking up to God. One of my favorite quotes on humility, uh, which is kind of, you know, we often think humility as the opposite of pride, uh, is from Rick Warren, and it says that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, so it's not just going from saying, I'm awesome, to saying I'm terrible, I'm a horrible person, but it's just thinking of yourself less. So it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And as a, if you're fact-checking or if you are thinking, this is often misattributed to C.S. Lewis, so if you're like, no, 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 Julie, that's not Rick Warren, it is. I, I checked it. You can uh, you can look it up if you want. I just heard a stat recently that like there's a pretty high percentage of millennials that like fact check sermons as they're listening to them. <laughs> so if you're on your phone, I'm just gonna assume you're fact checking me. I'm gonna assume you're not on social media. You're not texting. You're just you're really engaged and you just really want to make sure that it's right. So hey, I'm all about that. You should check everything I say, but. I just think this quote is really helpful because, again, when we think about pride, we often think, like, okay, if I just need to get rid of my pride, I just need to say I'm bad. Right? Like, I'm not great. I'm not awesome. Just turn around and reverse it all. But that's not actually helpful because you're still thinking about yourself, right? You haven't changed your gaze of constantly looking inward, constantly thinking about your abilities, your achievements, and, you know, the type of acknowledgement that you deserve you've just flipped it, but you're not actually changing where you're looking. You're not changing your gaze. And so I think we need to, instead of just saying, I need to go from being awesome to being horrible, we need to say, I need to turn my gaze from myself, and I need to turn it to Jesus, right? We need to change our position and look up towards God. Uh, And I think, okay, how do we do this? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? Hebrews 2.12 says that because he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, uh, we can fix our eyes on him. So we quit looking at ourselves, we look up, and we look at the one who's already lived a perfect life on our behalf. And this is a truly beautiful and freeing thing, right? To be able to be freed from constantly evaluating yourself, from constantly looking inward and thinking about, Whether or not you're measuring up to your scorecards or to anybody else's scorecards, or just to constantly be thinking about how great you are, right? Like, this is exhausting to constantly be looking inward. It's a huge weight that we carry around with us. But when we turn and we fix our eyes on Jesus, that weight is lifted for us. Because he already came and lived a perfect life. He achieved in a way that we never will, right? And his abilities are far beyond ours, and he deserves that acknowledgement. He came and he lived sinlessly. He died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And when we turn our gaze from ourselves, we repent from our pride and believe in Christ, then we're enough in his eyes. No matter what you're trying to live up to, Christ is the answer. If you're working hard to get those achievements so you can feel like you're seen, right? You just feel like no one sees me. Am I just invisible? Maybe if I can achieve these things or work really hard, then maybe people will finally notice me. Know that you're already seen in Christ. He already looks at you, and he loves you, and he sees you as perfect through himself because of what he's already done. If you're succeeding by whatever standard you already have, and you're like, okay, I I feel I'm I'm pretty good. Like, I feel like I'm doing okay. uh, The bar is just going to keep getting raised, right? Like, there's always going to be some other thing. There's always going to be some other promotion that you're trying to get, or some other standard that you're going to try to meet. And so this constant trying to climb and do better and better in Christ, you can rest, right? Because he already knows that, that we've all sinned, that we're all screw-ups. He already knows that you're going to screw up again. And because of what he's done, you're forgiven in him through that. And so you don't have to keep trying and trying to meet the next standard and the next standard and the next standard. You don't have to prove yourself when you turn and believe in Christ. So whether you struggle with thinking too highly of yourself uh, or whether you think struggle with thinking too lowly of yourself – Jesus is still the answer, right? He came and his message is that we've all fallen short, we've all sinned, and yet he levels the playing field and says, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're perfect, it doesn't, or if you think you're perfect, because you're not. It doesn't matter if you think you're horrible. He still loves us. He came and saw us as sinners, and he says, I still love you. I'm willing to go to the cross for you. And so as we close and we start to think about application, I just want to review these points that we've been talking about, right? Give you some questions to think about. So, redefining success, what scorecard are you trying to live up to? Right? Whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's something that you feel like culture has put on you some standard of beauty or of uh, athleticism or whatever it is, what scorecard are you trying to live up to? And how can resting in Christ give you relief from that? How can you turn from your own scorecard and, and looking in at yourself and look up to Christ? And then, secondly, Giving credit where credit is due. When's the last time you gave God credit for something in your life? When's the last time something went well at work or at home or wherever, and you thought, man, I am so thankful that God is working in my life and that he is working in the lives of the people around me, and I'm just going to praise him for that? When's the last time you've done that? And then lastly, repent and look up. And this is great because we actually get the opportunity to do that corporately now, right? So we're gonna move to a time of uh, worship and communion and it's gonna give us an opportunity to really reflect on the fact that Christ did die for us, right, and we get to practice that through communion and that when we look to him, we don't have to carry around the weight of constantly looking inward, constantly thinking about ourselves. We can turn and look to him. We get to practice that through worship and communion right now. We also have giving in the back if you uh, would like to respond through giving, or you can do that online. We believe that's another response to God. Um, And then prayer. So if you are, if you'd like prayer from someone, we'll have someone in the back, they'll have a little name tag on um, that just says prayer team, and they'd love to pray for you. And let me just say, you, I know we just kind of started this, but you don't have to be in crisis or have like some really big thing to ask for prayer, right? This isn't like a, um, you know, like you have to have some really big thing in order to go back there and talk to someone. We just think that prayer is a huge part of our uh, life and of our way to, to be in relationship with God and to communicate with him. And even if it's something that you want to offer praise to God for, right, go ahead and pray with someone in the back if you feel like that would be a helpful way for you to practice that. All right, so we're going to move to that uh, time and the worship band's going to come back up and play some songs. You can come forward and take communion at any time. Um, you don't have to be Like a regular attender here, we just ask that you're a follower of Christ. So we ask that you have made that decision to quit looking inward for yourself and to look up uh, at Christ and trust him in that. All right, and then as we wrap up, I'm going to just pray King Nebuchadnezzar's prayer for us, because I think it's a really great example uh, of what it looks like to praise and acknowledge God. So please pray with me. All right, Lord, your dominion is an eternal dominion. Your kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. You do as you please with the powers of heaven and the powers of earth, the peoples of earth. No one can hold back your hand or say to you, what have you done? Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are in control uh, and that we, we know that through Christ's example that you are trustworthy. You're good. You're willing to sacrifice for us because you love us uh, and you're just. You won't let things go unpunished. Um, so Lord, we just thank you for that and we turn and offer you the praise and acknowledgement that you deserve through that. In your name we pray. Amen.